This is episode 167 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Kelly Salmon. She is an SLP specializing in the treatment of adults with communication and swallowing disorders across the continuum of care. She's been a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders since 2011 and earned designation in 2014 as a Lymphology Association of North America Certified Lymphedema Therapist, specializing in the treatment of head and neck lymphedema. Over the past several years of her career, Kelly has focused on becoming an expert in the treatment of swallowing disorders resulting from many medical conditions, including head and neck cancer, stroke, and progressive disease. The evaluation and treatment of head and neck lymphedema has also become a focused area of clinical practice for Kelly over the past 10 years. She is also passionate about working with individuals undergoing total laryngectomy to rehabilitate and restore communication and swallowing function throughout the various stages of survivorship. Kelly earned her bachelor's degree in speech pathology and audiology through Stockton University in New Jersey, her master's degree in speech pathology at New York University, and recently completed her clinical doctorate in speech language pathology at Nova Southeastern University in 2018. She completed a research study examining swallowing-related outcomes for individuals undergoing specialized robotic surgery for head and neck cancer as part of her applied dissertation. Kelly takes pride in contributing to the field of speech-language pathology through teaching and supervising graduate-level students, presenting posters and courses at national conferences, and engaging in multidisciplinary research initiatives. She has recently transitioned from full-time clinical practice to the academic setting as an assistant professor at Salis University. She also has recently established a medical speech pathology consulting service with longtime colleague Kara Meharry. And I am so happy to have Kelly back for this episode. Um, we did decide to break this interview up into two parts because it's so wonderful and comprehensive, just as everything that Kelly does is. So I hope you all enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the MetaSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is to help ditch the old school ways of the past that no longer serve you or your patients, to reinvigorate your passion for our field, to broaden your knowledge about our scope of practice, and to inspire you to practice at the top of your license. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride, be open and willing to learn, because let's face it, your patients deserve that kind of care. With that, let's dive right in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good morning, Kelly. Good morning. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm excited to be here. Yes, yes. It's been a while since you've been on, but thank you for coming back. So tell the people a little bit about yourself. I think you're in a whole new role, a whole new world now. So. Yeah, so my name is Kelly Salmon, and I am happy to be back here on Swallow Your Pride to talk about one of my favorite topics. Um, a little bit about me, um, I am currently a full-time faculty member at Salis University, which is a graduate level uh, university focused on healthcare professions um, in the suburbs of Philadelphia. Um, I've been here for just about a year now, and it's been a really great learning experience and a great challenge. 
prior to this, I was always working full-time clinical care. I've always been uh, medically focused and working primarily with adults, kind of across all the different settings that you can work in, in healthcare. And I just kind of made this career decision to take on a new opportunity last year. Um, and it's been super f- fulfilling and rewarding. And I'm really enjoying this opportunity to kind of train the next generation of uh, speech language pathologists. Yay, they're so lucky to have you. All right, what are we going to talk about today, Kelly? Yeah, so today we are going to delve into the topic of total laryngectomy, which is kind of a subpopulation within the head and neck cancer population. And this discussion is kind of a little bit of a follow-up on a brief presentation that I did as part of the MedSLP Summit um, at the beginning of December this year. Awesome. All right. So where should we start? So I thought we might start by just kind of talking about what is a total laryngectomy in the first place. Um, This is an area that I've been interested in from the first time that I ever heard about it. When I was in grad school, which at this point it's approaching 20 years, which in my mind sounds crazy, but I guess relatively speaking, it was a while ago. Um, And the place where we talked about head and neck cancer and we talked about total laryngectomy was in my voice disorders course. And I was immediately fascinated because coming into my grad program, you know, I didn't have much of an understanding of what we did or do as medical speech language pathologists. And the thought of working with someone with cancer was kind of scary, um, you know, that we would work with someone who was fighting this this disease process. And then I learned about total laryngectomy and how there are all of these consequences and side effects and that as speech language pathologists, we play a key role in the rehabilitation of individuals who've had this drastic surgery to address their, um, their head and neck cancer. So I thought I'd start by just talking about what is a total laryngectomy in the first place and why would someone have a total laryngectomy? Um, And there are some reasons that are clear and obvious and others that we might not necessarily think of as being a reason that someone would either have this surgery be recommended to them or they might elect or opt to have this surgery to address their issues. So the most common reason that someone undergoes a total laryngectomy is because they have advanced laryngeal cancer, cancer affecting the components of the larynx, the true vocal folds, false vocal folds, the epiglottis. Sometimes it invades the cartilage of the thyroid cartilage or cricoid cartilage. In some cases, it can extend into the pharyngeal walls or to the base of tongue. So when there's this advanced level of laryngeal cancer, the preference is often to surgically remove the entire larynx. Um, And again, that's known as a total laryngectomy. And with total laryngectomy, there are several structures that are automatically removed as part of the surgery. So it includes removal of the hyoid bone, the epiglottis, the thyroid cartilage, the cricoid cartilage, and usually the first few tracheal rings um, to be sure that the entirety of the cancer has been removed. 
So that's the, the first reason, and it can be the primary approach to addressing that individual's head and neck cancer, that surgery is recommended as the definitive cure for their cancer. Now, in some individuals, they may recommend, instead of having a total laryngectomy right off the bat, they may recommend that the individual undergoes chemoradiation as the first attempt to clear them of their disease. And in some cases, it works really well. Um, and in some cases, someone might go through a complete course of chemoradiation. And unfortunately, it doesn't clear them of all of the disease. So sometimes, despite hoping that the chemoradiation would cure the laryngeal cancer, it doesn't. And then they need to still have a total laryngectomy at which point we call it a salvage procedure because they tried something else first, it didn't work, and now we have to go back and opt for this surgical intervention. So those are two common reasons that someone might have a total laryngectomy. There's two other reasons that happen a little less frequently, but still happen, and um, it might be something, depending on the setting that you're in, that you may see often. I saw one of the one of these two pretty frequently one is called a functional laryngectomy and when we say functional laryngectomy this means typically that an individual doesn't have any active cancer affecting their larynx but they've been treated for laryngeal cancer in the past so this might be an example of someone who had chemo radiation treatment 5 10 15 20 years ago and over time, the effects of that chemoradiation treatment, the later effects of that treatment, have rendered their larynx dysfunctional, meaning that our larynx is responsible for three main functions. Uh, one is breathing. Another is being able to use our voice to communicate. And the third is to be able to move out of the way when we're eating and drinking to protect our airway from food or liquid entering in. So in some people, these later effects of treatment render their larynx essentially non-functional. So they're having trouble with breathing. Perhaps they have damage to the vocal folds where they're paralyzed and obstructing airflow. So they may have trouble breathing. They may have trouble protecting their airway consistently when swallowing and are experiencing chronic aspiration pneumonias. Um, they're hospitalized several times a year because they just have really poor ability to protect their airway. And third, they may have um, issues with their voice. Again, if they have vocal fold dysfunction, um, they may not be able to produce quality voice that we would expect, either it's extremely hoarse or breathy or sometimes either extremely dysphonic or even aphonic. Um, so in some of these cases, the a head and neck surgeon or laryngologist may recommend a functional laryngectomy where the individual undergoes a total laryngectomy, even though they have no active cancer, but the hope is that by having this procedure, it will at least remediate some of the issues that they're experiencing in terms of their breathing, their communication, and their swallowing. So I saw quite a few individuals in the, that situation. Ultimately, it ends up being considered kind of more of an elective procedure at that point because they don't have active disease. But for many people who do choose to go that route, it's often a decision of 
quality of life. Um, will this improve my ability to either live longer because I'm cutting down on the number of times that I'm going through an aspiration pneumonia? Um, will it allow me the opportunity to potentially at least eat or drink something? And yes, I may lose the voice that I have, but right now it's really not so great. So I'm willing to take that um, trade-off and learn an alternate way of communication. And then finally, the last time or last uh, situation where someone may undergo a total laryngectomy. Um, I've seen a few cases of this. It's not super common, but sometimes a total laryngectomy will be recommended for individuals who have intractable aspiration um, and not necessarily head and neck cancer population, but more in a neurologic case. So in some cases of brainstem stroke, for example, where an individual does not show significant improvement over time and they're just bathing in their own secretions. They're consistently aspirating, again, experiencing pulmonary side effects of that. Sometimes it'll be recommended kind of as a last resort option to try to preserve quality of life or to try to you know, extend um, an individual's ability to survive um, without having that constant barrage of aspiration to the lungs. So there are common indications for a total laryngectomy and some that are a little bit less common. Awesome. Well, thank you, Kelly. Let, let me let me ask, and this might be a silly question, but how often do people not get a total laryngectomy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there are several classes of partial laryngectomy, um, and those are usually decided upon, again, depending upon the exact location and extent of the tumor or the disease. So just a couple examples of partial laryngectomies. Um, Probably the two most common that I've seen are either supraglottic laryngectomy or supracricoid laryngectomy. And so these two procedures preserve at least some structure and function of the larynx. It may come with other trade-offs in terms of expectations for swallowing and for voice, but it's more of a kind of a choice to preserve as much structure and function as possible in those situations. There are other types of laryngectomies, including hemi-laryngectomies, where um, we would split the larynx uh, vertically and uh, remove half of it. I honestly haven't seen that in clinical practice at all, actually, in the um, many years I've spent in the ENT office. Um, I saw one in, in a nursing home once, and I was yeah, like, yeah, yeah, so it, it does, <laughs> exactly, it does happen, um, but I would say supraglottic and supracricoid partial laryngectomies are fairly common as well. Again, the positive is that we're keeping structures in place as much as we can. The downside is that sometimes the impact on swallowing is really difficult to overcome because with both of those procedures, we're taking away structures above um, a certain level, either above the cricoid cartilage or above the true vocal folds. And so the more you strip away the layers of protection um, for the airway, like the epiglottis, for example, or the false vocal folds, or some of the connection points to the hyoid bone, then we start to see 
more swallowing dysfunction because we've compromised airway protection. So it's a consideration for, for those types of partial laryngectomies. All right. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, that's a great question. So one of the great things um, about this patient population is that we tend to be involved in their care from before they even have surgery and then following them postoperatively in the acute care setting, within the outpatient setting. And then we tend to see them for many, many years beyond surgery as part of the survivorship phase of their experience. So these tend to be patients that, depending on the setting that you're in, I was in outpatient, for example, and these are the kind of patients that kind of become your lifelong friends um, because you follow them frequently and you follow them at designated time points. after surgery to kind of make sure that they're doing well with all aspects of their breathing, their swallowing, and their and their voicing. So it's really great to have that opportunity to be a part of the care of these individuals. Um, they are quite a unique patient population to be able to uh, serve. So I thought I'd talk a little bit first about kind of what our role is in the preoperative phase. So the patient's been either diagnosed with an advanced laryngeal cancer or they have been recommended to have this because they've undergone chemo radiation and um, it's failed and they have this salvaged total laryngectomy or they have a dysfunctional larynx and have opted to um, undergo this procedure. So they've been told by their head and neck surgeon that they're going to have a total laryngectomy. You know, the surgeon explains a little bit about the procedure um, in terms of expectations, you know, how long the, the, the surgery takes and, you know, what structures are going to be removed and how things might change afterwards. But let's be honest, the, you know, surgeon doesn't have a ton of time during their office hours to give the patient a full hour attention or more to really explain the ins and outs of of what's going to happen. So, you know, the patient gets some information from the head and neck surgeon and they ultimately, you know, consent or decide that they're going to go through with this procedure. And then typically the next step is to meet with a speech language pathologist who can talk them through what to expect. And one of the first things um, that I do or one of the first things that I consider my role to be is to first evaluate the patient and the family's understanding of the diagnosis and the proposed surgical intervention. So I always start by asking them to tell me (laughs) what they understand about this surgery or what they're thinking or what their expectations are kind of going into this, because that gives me an idea of where I need to start with my preoperative assessment and and where I need to go with my preoperative education. And so if we want to talk more in depth about what's included in a preoperative assessment, once I get a sense from the patient or the family, you know, usually these patients have at least one family member with them, sometimes five or six. but usually they have a, a spouse or a partner or one of their children is with them or a close friend. You know, usually they have someone with them. And it's important to get a sense of what type of social support they have right off the bat. Um, because going into this, um, I'll talk a little bit more 
later about what are we expecting the patient to look like in the first few days after surgery and in that kind of acute phase of recovery. But it's a lot. There's, you know, a lot going on in terms of wound healing and managing a stoma and learning a new way to communicate. So knowing, you know, what types of social and emotional support these individuals have is super important because there may be some things, uh, you know, related to their self-care that they can't accomplish on their own, at least in the early stages. So when it comes to completing that pre-operative assessment, you know, it kind of starts off just like any other evaluation that we might complete with a patient. You know, we're going to kind of soup to nuts, um, assess their baseline level of function in terms of their oral motor skills, their cranial nerve exam, or the integrity of their cranial nerves, taking a look at what their articulation and their resonance sounds like now before they even have surgery, asking about swallowing and how they're doing with swallowing up front, also looking into other areas like cognition. Um, that is certainly going to be important when it comes to training an individual in a new way of communicating. What are their fine motor skills like? That's going to be an important component of either using an electrolarynx or potentially managing a voice prosthesis down the line. And then social history is important too. For many individuals that have this surgery, it may, their, their diagnosis, <clears throat> excuse me, might come at a time in their life where they're still very active. They may still be working. They may, you know, have a young family. They may have lots of social commitments and um, activities that they like to participate in. So getting a sense of kind of what their everyday life is like is also important because it'll help us to think about when they've had their surgery, what can we do to get them back to as many of these activities as possible? And I will say it is absolutely possible. I've had patients who were lawyers who went back to the courtroom and you know individuals who worked in an industrial setting who went back to work. I've had people who were exterminators who went back to work with a total laryngectomy. So it's absolutely possible, but it's definitely something to consider upfront you know, what their uh, everyday life is like and what their goals are. Do they want to hopefully go back to work um, so we can keep that in mind? And so once we've kind of completed that piece of our assessment, which again, doesn't really differ much from what we do every day, that's when we start to kind of shift towards providing preoperative counseling and education. And there's a lot of topics to cover, um, but um, I'll, I'll try to kind of keep it in a, a bulleted list type of format here. But a big thing that we cover are the anatomic changes. You know, we have illustrations and I can talk a little bit later about resources for clinicians and where you can find them um, because there's a lot of really great free resources made available to us that we can use for patient education um, with this particular patient population. But I pull out very simple, easy to understand um, illustrations of what the anatomy looks like normally before surgery and then what it looks like after. You know, and I meet the patient where they are. You know, I've had patients who, you know, had some medical background or their families had a medical background and they wanted to, you know, kind of get really in depth in terms of talking about 
structures or musculature or, you know, kind of get into the nitty gritty of the surgical procedure um, where others, you know, they really either weren't in a place to hear it or they didn't have that level of understanding or comprehension. So that does require a little bit of finesse in terms of meeting the patient where they are. And more broadly, there are some patients, again, who want to know everything before they have their surgery. They want every little bit of information. They want every handout or pamphlet or catalog that you might have. They want all of it up front. And then there are some patients who just, they're still reeling from getting this cancer diagnosis or getting this recommendation um, for a total laryngectomy and they just aren't ready to hear most of it. And so in those cases, they may say, you know what, I'm just gonna you know, put this in God's hands and I'll deal with things as they come up afterward. And that's fine. You know, we absolutely respect the patient and how much they want to know or how much they want to hear going into it. So that's certainly a consideration. But what I'm talking about here in terms of the the different areas are kind of in the ideal case where you have a patient who's actively engaged and they want to at least know a good amount of information up front. So we talk about the anatomic changes. Then we talk about what is a stoma, right? Because your average person has no idea what a stoma is and how having an opening in your neck could change a lot of things for you. So we talk in very basic terms about what a stoma is, that there's this permanent opening in your neck and that is how you're going to breathe. And so we talk about how changes to our respiratory system are going to be expected if we're breathing through our neck, that we're bypassing our upper airway, that we're no longer breathing through our nose or through our mouth, and that this is going to have an impact on things like mucus production and coughing um, and lung function. Not breathing through the nose or the mouth is going to have an effect on taste and smell. So we talk about all of these different topics so that even if it's a lot of information up front and the patient can't absorb all of it, at least they've kind of heard it in to some extent and they can, when they start coming back after surgery, we can delve into those topics a little bit more. But we kind of introduce all of that up front. And then we talk to them too about how the loss of the larynx is going to affect their voice as they know it or their ability to communicate as they know it. And we keep this pretty positive because we do have options to restore voice. And voice restoration is probably one of the most, or that one of the things that patients are most most interested in learning about, um, because that's what they're often most afraid of, is losing their voice and losing their ability to communicate. So I like to spend time with them reviewing options for restoring communication and showing them people who are able to now communicate after they've lost their larynx. So I give them a rundown on the three main options, using an electrolarynx, having a voice prosthesis placed, or using esophageal speech. And I have videos online that are, again, freely available to everyone on YouTube, individuals using an electrolarynx, individuals using a voice prosthesis, and people using esophageal speech. This way they get an opportunity to observe people who have already gone through what they're going to go through um, and they can see that they can communicate pretty successfully um, in most cases. 
So we talk about the options and we talk about the timing of the introduction of these different options. And then the last thing we typically cover is talking about the medical supplies that they are going to need to manage their stoma, to manage their airway, and in some cases, to facilitate voicing. So we kind of give them a heads up, you know, again, this stoma is permanent, we need to take care of it, it's our airway, and there are these materials that have been created to make sure that we're staying safe, that we are practicing good hygiene of this area, and that we are optimizing our respiratory system. So we talk about things like laryngectomy tubes and laryngectomy buttons and HMEs, which stands for heat and moisture exchange. Talk about how to secure the laryngectomy tube in place. And we talk about options aside from tubes and buttons that they might be able to transition to later on down the line. Again, it's a balance of giving them some good insight, but not overwhelming them at the same time. And then finally, the institution where I was, we had a pretty robust uh, laryngectomy support group. Um, it met on a monthly basis and we would invite people to come to the group even before their surgery if they wanted to. It certainly wasn't required, but if they wanted to have the opportunity to meet with some real live people who've undergone laryngectomy, you know, to see what it what it's all about and, you know, see how they're doing or see that ultimately there is life after laryngectomy. We invited them to do that if the timing worked out. And if the timing didn't work out, we had a couple people who had had their uh, laryngectomy surgeries at our institution who were kind of on call for being a, a laryngectomy buddy or kind of a peer support. So we could call them in to meet with the individual to you know, give them a heads up and, and talk to them about their experience or to try to um, help calm their fears um, about going into the procedure. Um, so it's quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's awesome. I, I remember in grad school, we had a laryngectomy support group, and it was probably one of the most memorable things mm -hmm. from grad school that we had just, I think it really like instilled to me, like how cool and powerful our job really can be. Yeah, and I think it speaks to the resilience of human beings in general. Again, this is this is a major surgery. It impacts kind of all aspects of of our head and neck function in terms of breathing and swallowing and speaking. And at first glance, you might think, gosh, I would rather not not continue to exist on this earth if that's what I had to go through. But more often than not, the people I've met that have gone through this procedure they were some of the most inspiring people out there. I mean, they've just continued on with their lives and they've done great things. And so, yeah, it really is uh, really inspiring to have the opportunity to work with these individuals. And they're often super, super happy to kind of give back by being a mentor or a buddy or kind of a peer support to people who might be going through it. And it's kind of a tight knit group. You know, these people, you know, sometimes it's, it's kind of like a war veteran, right? They've been through, they've been through hell together and they have this kind of common ground of being able to say that they've survived. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 one of my favorite um, groups to work with. So I thought next I might talk a little bit about the materials that are out there and available for patient education, kind of before surgery and, and after surgery as well. 
And I think one of the great things with this patient population, you know, there's two main companies that all they do all day, every day is um, laryngectomy care um, and making products for these individuals. And that's Atos Medical and In-Health Technologies. And they've both done amazing jobs, not just in terms of product development and trying to find, you know, what laryngectomies actually need, um, but both both of these companies have also developed really great, robust education materials, training materials, and clinical support. So I do um, advocate for anyone who's interested in working with this patient population to just go to their websites. They have great, great materials for both clinicians and patients and families that are available for free download that you can use to provide your patient and family education. So their websites are gold. I've used them throughout my career from when I first started and used a lot of the material as um, an opportunity to teach myself some of the information and continue to use it for for patient and family um, and caregiver and and now student education um, on the topic. So I would definitely encourage people to explore those websites. It's uh, really a gold mine of, um, of information. They're uh, specifically with ATOS, they have a guide, again, available for free download on the website called Life as a Laryngectomy. And it's kind of a what to expect guide. Um, So I'll often print that out um, and provide a copy to the patient and the family so that they can kind of read through it as a what to expect type of um, resource in terms of reinforcing some of the information that we've reviewed during our preoperative assessment and counseling session. They also have a whole section of something called care tips. And these care tips cover a ton of different topics that are laryngectomy related. Anything from how to clean your laryngectomy tube to how to know that it's time to replace your heat and moisture exchange filter um, to how to care for your voice prosthesis if you have one, um, how to use an adhesive base plate. It really, um, each one of them is a step-by-step instructional guide for the patient on how to do these different or how to complete these different aspects of their care. Um, So those are also invaluable because, you know, we will train the patients on how to do these things when they come to see us. Um, But when they leave the office and they go home, they may say, oh, wait, what am I supposed to do again? And it's all printed out um, nice and clear for the patient. So I'll use those um, quite often, not as much in the preoperative phase, but postoperatively kind of to address issues as they come up for, for these individuals. And then both ATOS and InHealth, as well as many other individuals, have YouTube channels. Um, We can pretty much figure out how to do anything now on YouTube. um, And caring for laryngectomy is not excluded from that. So again, both ATOS and InHealth as reputable providers, they both have great YouTube channels that have videos um, explaining everything from, you know, what to expect in terms of surgery to how to change your own voice prosthesis. So there's lots of really valuable and really great information there. And that's usually my go-to in terms of finding examples of individuals who are using different modes of communication from the electrolarynx 
to the voice prosthesis to esophageal speech, they have lots of patient examples and kind of interviews with patients asking them about their experience. So I find those to be really valuable and easy to pull up for quick, you know, patient education to say, hey, here's an example of someone using a voice prosthesis or here's someone using an electrolarynx and see, you can understand him pretty well. And look, his accent is still there. He's from Texas and you can still tell, right? So a lot of that helps to address some of our patients' fears um, about using an alternate means of uh, voice. Another great resource, there's a spiral bound book called Self-Help for the Laryngectomy and it's by Edmund and James Louder. And I can certainly provide links to all of these things um, for you to put in the show notes. But um, this book, it's been around forever. Um, but being that it's titled Self-Help for the Laryngectomy, it really is written for people who've had a laryngectomy. So not only does it cover a lot of the self-care type things of how to clean your stoma, how to manage mucus, how to insert your laryngectomy tube and secure it in place. The bonus in that book, in my opinion, is at the very end of the book, they have a section on speech exercises. So essentially, it's not much more than articulation drills, but it's a great place um, when you're starting out training an individual on using an electrolarynx. Um, it's a great way to work with them in a structured way, you know, just like we would do any other type of motor speech or articulation therapy where we're starting with, you know, single syllable words and multisyllabic words and phrases and sentences and paragraphs and minimal pairs and all that kind of stuff. So um, that part of that book is worth its weight, worth its $10, I think, um, for me as the speech pathologist as an easy way to, you know, start the patient off in terms of having some things that they can work on at home. Um, so there's a lot of really great materials out there that are either free or low cost um, to be able to um, share with our patients. Um, now with things being online, you know, we don't even have to print everything out. You know, some patients and families are super tech savvy and they just download these materials on their iPad or their laptop and they access them as they need it. So, so there's options to be environmentally friendly and, and um, you know, keep things digital instead of um, having to print everything out uh, like we used to. So that's, that's quite a bit of free information that's, that's out there. And then one of the other things I wanted to kind of talk about a little bit was how, you know, we talk about how total laryngectomy is going to impact breathing and communication and swallowing. And the swallowing piece is the part that a lot of people are confused about up front, right? Because when we learn about total laryngectomy, often one of the myths that we hear about is that after you have a total laryngectomy, you're going to be able to swallow whatever you want, right? Um, and that's one of the things that patients will take away from a conversation with a physician or a head and neck surgeon because maybe they're struggling with swallowing before they even have their total laryngectomy or you know, maybe they have significant swallowing impairments before surgery and they can't eat or drink right now. And now all of a sudden they're like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll make this sacrifice as long as I can eat and drink whatever I want. And unfortunately, 
there's no such thing really as a normal swallow post laryngectomy. There can be a functional swallow for sure, um, but there are unique issues that happen in this patient population. And a lot of it is tied to the types of uh, surgical re uh, reconstruction that they've had, as well as whether or not they had radiation or chemoradiation before surgery or after surgery. All of these factors can impact how efficient an individual is um, at swallowing. And I know that you had done a podcast interview with um, Lori Wennerholm, um, and she did a, an amazing job talking about all of the ins and outs of swallowing impairments in total laryngectomy. So I won't go into it into too much depth here um, because she's got that great episode for you all to refer to. But I mention it now just to say that it's absolutely something that we talk about with patients up front to let them know that it may not be, you know, all unicorns and roses when it comes to swallowing after surgery, that there may still be some limitations, um, there may still be some strategies that they need to implement in order to be successful, that there may be certain consistencies of foods that are troublesome for them. So we try to set a realistic expectation that, you know, we hope that it's an improvement over what's going on right now, but we want you to expect that there may still be some challenges relating related to swallowing after surgery. And again, Lori does a great job of kind of detailing those in her episode as well. So that's kind of a lot of what we talk about preoperatively. And really my goal for this discussion today was really to talk about kind of our role in the preoperative assessment and then a little bit about kind of what happens in the acute postoperative phase. So when the person is in acute care in the hospital, you know, what do we do with them at that point in time? All right. I think this is a great place to stop. We decided to cut Kelly's fabulous episode into two parts. So next week, come back for the post-op episode of Kelly Salmon talking about all things laryngectomy. To download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Special credit to Danny V. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills, and to Marissa Hendrickson for managing all the things behind the scenes. As always, thanks so much for listening, and see you next week.